the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing and engineering here in Portland and Pedro Bartes producing and engineering in Seattle. Today, looking forward to a conversation with Lauren McAfee. She is the co-editor of Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. The book is published by Forefront. We'll talk with her uh, later this hour, so hope you can uh, stick around and join us for that. We'll also uh, take a look at some of the news that accumulated over the last uh, several days, uh, including the weekend. Beginning with the Senate passing a last-ditch stopgap spending bill late Saturday night, averting a government shutdown only a few hours before the deadline. Well, after a roll call vote, the bill succeeded with 88 senators in favor, nine opposing. Under Senate requirements, 60 votes were needed for the vote to pass. The president uh, signed it uh, immediately. Democratic Senator um, Bennett had delayed voting earlier in the day over objections to the bill's lack of additional aid for Ukraine, according to multiple outlets. On Saturday afternoon, the measure called a continuing resolution succeeded in the House after the uh, Speaker secured enough Democratic votes uh, support to overcome the opposition of GOP hardliners. The bill that funds the government for 45 days while negotiations over a long-term spending bill continue, I hope you're in prayer about that, was approved in the House 335 to 91. Democrats who voted in favor totaled 209, more than compensating for the 90 Republicans who voted against it. Well, McCarthy needed the support of scores of Democrats to pass the bill in the House, given the two-thirds majority requirement to pass legislation under suspension of the rules. And though the Democratic caucus balked at the lack of additional Ukraine aid in the bill, Enough members got on board to debate conclude uh, as debate concluded on Saturday. Also, Democratic leadership in the House insisted the Ukraine aid issue be raised again in subsequent proceedings. Well, McCarthy faced a lot of pressure from within his caucus to not pursue a continuing resolution throughout the multi-day proceedings. A group of House Freedom Caucus hardliners led by Representative Matt Gates. more on that later, uh, have long vowed to force a vote of no confidence if McCarthy tried to work around them to pass a short-term spending bill. He worked around them, and the fireworks are just beginning. What I am asking, Republicans and Democrats alike, put your partisanship away, McCarthy said. Focus on the American public, end quote. Well, the GOP holdouts who made McCarthy's ascension to the speakership a grueling uphill battle, you might recall. <clears throat> they say... <clears throat> Excuse me. They're motivated by process concerns and have insisted on passing individual bills to fund various parts of the government. That's sort of the way it's supposed to be done. Twelve bills, 12 different (coughs) areas to focus on. But that has not been the case for quite some time as they have waited to the last minute. Well, the continuing resolution signed on Saturday to keep the government funded for another month and a half. It's significant less for its substance than for what its enactment says about key Uh, power dynamics in the Congress. (coughs) Excuse me. The bill itself is largely awash. 
It doesn't change much about what our government does or how much it spends, and neither party won much or lost much through its passage. Congress just bought itself a little more time, which it's gotten quite good at, buying itself a little more time because it failed to do its primary uh, work on time. But the way it happened was extremely consequential, and it tells us at least three important things. First of all, it signals a new phase of the McCarthy speakership. Until Saturday, he'd managed to mostly keep his conferences, various factions together, by avoiding any real governing choices. Well, this was done by advancing symbolic legislation that didn't have much of a chance in the Senate and by getting one must-pass legislative package, increasing the debt ceiling, enacted by promising to do impossible things. It was always going to be very difficult to sustain that approach in the appropriations process because the objectives of a small but significant group of House Freedom Caucus members in that process were not really traditional legislative objectives at all. And they were not going to be uh, compatible with the objectives of the rest of the Republican conference. Well, over the past week or so, McCarthy put the HFC members, the House Freedom Caucus members, in a position that revealed that um, they had no intention of ever voting for spending bills that could also pass the Senate. His goal was always to make it clear to the rest of the conference that there was no way forward except a legislative vehicle that could get some Democratic votes. But it was not at all clear that he could do that without first going through a government shutdown. On Saturday, McCarthy evidently decided to just skip that showdown, since it would uh, be useless and pointless at best, and put a bill on the floor that would easily get the support of a majority of the House, but a bipartisan majority and not a purely Republican one. McCarthy can no longer uh, really pretend that his approach to running the House is not at odds with the approach of a portion of the House Freedom Caucus and what they want to see. Well, after the vote on uh, on Saturday, he explicitly described the House Freedom Caucus members as operating outside the larger Republican conference, even as he said he hoped that might change. I welcome those 21 back in, and we would get a better and more conservative bill if they would uh, vote with us, he said. There is a they and there is an us now, and McCarthy's fate depends on um, how many of his members identify with his side of that divide. The Speaker finds himself in a position very similar to the one in which his two Republican predecessors, Paul Ryan and John Boehner, ultimately found themselves, referring to himself on Saturday as the adult in the room and to the House Freedom Caucus as reckless and impractical. He isn't altogether wrong, but his move and his rhetoric effectively amounted to conceding that his attempt to find a different uh, a different way than his um, predecessors had found to thread the needle of leading House Republicans had failed. Well, the argument that uh, McCarthy's chief opponents in the conference made Saturday was that he betrayed his colleagues by depending on Democrats for passage of his continuing resolution. Well, secondly... The continuing resolution also signals a new phase for Senate Republicans. What happened in their conference on Saturday was almost as dramatic as what happened in the House. Mitch McConnell has generally led Senate Republicans by avoiding taking strong substantive positions himself and instead facilitating consensus, focusing on process and protecting Republican senators from hard votes. But in this appropriations process, he uh, staked out a firm substantive position regarding funding for American aid to Ukraine. He made a concerted effort to persuade his fellow Republican senators to advance the Senate version of a continuing resolution, which would have included such aid and so, in effect, 
to jam the House on the issue. He urged his colleagues to do so as late as Saturday's lunch conversation among Republican senators. But his colleagues, including several members of his leadership team, overruled him on Saturday and decided to oppose cloture on the Senate version of the continuing resolution in order to allow the House to move first. And finally, Saturday's extraordinary turn of events puts Ukraine funding at the heart of the continuing struggle over appropriations. Democrats in both houses suggested that they voted for the resolution on the premise that the debate over Ukraine funding is not over and that it may return to center stage even before the broader question of funding the government does. Well, that may well happen. And there's every reason to think that some funding for more aid is ultimately going to be provided since majorities of both House and the president would like to see that happen. But large numbers of Republicans in both houses have now made it clear that they do not prioritize that funding. So the fireworks put off, but still coming. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Lauren McAfee. She's the co-editor of Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. That's coming up. In our next segment, well, Clarence Thomas has recused himself as the Supreme Court rejected an appeal from John Eastman, a former legal advisor to Donald Trump, who had asked the court to reverse a previous ruling which held that his effort to overturn the results of the 2020 election potentially constituted a crime. Well, in March, a California federal judge ruled that Eastman's advice to then President Trump advocating overturning the 2020 to 2020 elections, rather, Uh, more likely than not, constituted a crime. Eastman, the constitutional law uh, law professor, controversially advanced the argument that Vice President Mike Pence could avoid certifying the election results. Because Eastman's actions were potentially criminal, the judge ruled that a a, uh, since-disbanded January 6th House committee had the right to view emails that had been archived by his former employer, Chapman University. The illegality of the plan was obvious, Judge David Carter wrote. Our nation was founded on the peaceful transition of power, epitomized by George Washington laying down his sword to make way for democratic elections. Ignoring this history, President Trump vigorously campaigned for the vice president to single-handedly determine the results of the 2020 election, In quote. Well, based on the evidence, the court finds it more likely than not that President Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021, Carter added. Well, since the House committee has already obtained and released Eastman's emails, the case was largely academic. But Eastman argued that the decision had harmed his reputation. The crime fraud ruling of the district court imposes a stigma not only on the petitioner, the petition said, but also on the former client, the former president of the United States and current candidate for the presidency in 2024. Well, on Monday, the Supreme Court rejected uh, Eastman's appeal challenging the lower court's ruling that he and Trump attempted to block the certification of the 2020 election results. Although Thomas um, didn't disclose the reason for his decision in keeping with standard procedure, recent reporting has shown that his wife, Jeannie, corresponded with Eastman as well as former Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows around the time of the 2020 election. Eastman also previously served as a law clerk for Thomas. Eastman is one of the 19 defendants named in Fulton County, Georgia, and the indictment involving the group's alleged efforts to overturn the presidential election results in the state. Tech billionaire Elon Musk, he visited the southern border in Eagle Pass, Texas on Thursday, 
with plans to live stream the tour of the area to give people a sense of the real situation with the ongoing migrant crisis. Musk, who owns Tesla, SpaceX and X, the social media platform, has shown significant interest in the ongoing crisis along the border and had been posting about it frequently on X. On Tuesday, Musk advanced, he, he uh, rather announced he had spoken with U.S. Representative Tony Gonzalez, Republican out of Texas, about the crisis, who confirmed it was a serious issue. Now, Musk, while donning a black cowboy hat, he looked rather unusual, went live on his platform on Thursday, saying that he was going to go around and speak with officials and eyeball the situation to get the real story. This is a real-time unfiltered, he said. Uh, we are seeing it as um, you are seeing it as I'm seeing it. Uh, Musk then said, as an immigrant himself, he is extremely pro-immigrant, but explained there are needs to be expanded uh, immigration that allows hardworking and honest people to legally come to the United States, but not allow immigrants who are going to break the law. Republican Senators Ted Cruz and uh, Cynthia Loomis, Texas and Wyoming, respectively, introduced a bill on Friday that would strip the federal salary from a Biden administration official overseeing aggressive fuel efficiency regulations. Cruz and Loomis bill, which will be introduced as an amendment to the so-called minibus appropriations package funding the Departments of Transportation, Housing and Veterans Affairs for fiscal year 24, would effectively defund Ann Carlson, who is serving as acting administrator of the National Highway Safety Administration, the Transportation Department sub-agency. Republicans on the Senate Commerce Committee, led by Cruz, who is the panel ranking member, they've argued that the White House is skirting constitutional requirements by allowing Carlson to lead the NHTSA in an acting capacity. Well, earlier this year, after substantial industry and congressional opposition, Carlson failed to clear the Senate confirmation to permanently lead the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Because the White House withdrew her nomination before she received a floor vote, she was technically allowed to to be paid by NHTSA acting administrator since she wasn't directly rejected. A loophole the bill Friday aims to close, depriving her of the opportunity to serve in that capacity and certainly to be paid for it. Well, a Polk County, Florida human trafficking operation earlier this month led to the arrest of 219 people, including people in the uh, the country illegally, a high school teacher, and three Disney employees, according to authorities. Polk County Sheriff Grady Judd on Thursday announced the results of the operation, saying out of the 119 prostitutes who were arrested during the operation that began last week, 21 were possible victims of human trafficking, in which they would be addressed and identified differently. Two suspects were charged with human trafficking, and both were in the U.S. illegally. Judge Judd's office said that 83 suspects were arrested for soliciting prostitution. 17 other suspects were arrested, and of those, five either derived proceeds from prostitution or aiding and abetting prostitutes, and eight drove the, um, the practice to the undercover location. Investigators charged a total of 44 felonies and 242 misdemeanors during the operation. Of those arrested, 35 are suspected to be in the country illegally and are from the countries of Cuba, Chile, Venezuela, Mexico, Guatemala, Colombia, or the Bahamas. 41 of the suspects confessed to detectives they were married. 13 said that they received government assistance. 42 brought illegal drugs to the undercover location. Two had firearms and 18 were from other states. The oldest person arrested was 76-year-old Frank 
uh, by Derek, and the youngest was 18-year-old Latrice Vilsaint, giving you just a glimpse into just how varied this human traffic operation across the country uh, actually is. A group of lawmakers wrote a letter to a top U.S. defense official demanding answers after a report revealed to military service members inadequate living conditions in barracks. The recent Government Accountability Office report outlining poor living conditions in our military barracks is deeply disturbing, Representative Mark Alford, a Republican out of Missouri, said. On a daily basis, these brave men and women put their lives on the line defending our freedoms. The least we can do is provide them adequate housing. Well, Alford was one of several lawmakers who joined forces to demand answers from the Defense Department in the letter, which is addressed to Assistant Secretary of Defense for Energy, Installations and Environment, Brendan Owens. It follows a GAO report last week that outlined dire conditions of some military barracks at installations across the country. The 118-page report, which included several pictures of barracks, rooms, and buildings at 12 unnamed military installations, outlined how many of the buildings young troops are forced to live in are plagued with problems such as overflowing sewage, cracked sewage pipes, water damage, pests, and mold or mildew growth. The report also outlined how GAO investigators spoke with service members to give them an opportunity to voice their concerns. And many of the troops complained of unsafe drinking water, broken air conditioning or heating units and unsecured or broken doors and windows that had in some cases led to squatters occupying rooms. The report also found that the uh, Defense Department had concluded uh, insufficient oversight of uh, improvement efforts for the buildings, often leaving the issue to individual services to handle unacceptable. Hey, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show coming up in our next couple of segments. Lauren McAfee, co-editor of Created in the Image of God. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Bible teaches that all people, men and women, are created in the image of God. But how can believers remain firmly rooted in the imago Dei when culture is more confused than ever about issues of human dignity? Well, in a new book, Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion, David Dockery and Lauren McAfee and a team of expert collaborators bring clarity and guidance from a biblical perspective as they explore what it means to be made in the image of God. They explore questions at the forefront of our cultural confusion. Questions like what it means to be human, the importance of life, the significance of relationships, the meaning of human sexuality, the understanding of maleness and femaleness, and the looming questions of artificial intelligence and transhumanism. Well, joining us to talk about the book is one of the co-authors, co-editors, Lauren McAfee. She is a Ph.D. in progress with the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a board chair and visionary of Stand for Life. She serves as ministry director for ministry investment at Hobby Lobby. She is the author of Only One Life. A Not What You Think, Legacy Study, and Beyond Our Control. She holds a Master of Arts in Pastoral Counseling and Theological Studies, as well as a Master of Theology. She and her husband have um, uh, two daughters, and they live in Oklahoma City. But today we have her by phone to talk about this uh, significant book that may help to clarify for us what Scripture teaches when it says that we are created in the image of God, the title of the book, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. 
We had a little bit of difficulty there. Can can you speak once again? I'm going to put you on hold, and maybe James, my producer, can um, can clear that up because we can't understand what's being said. In the introduction of the book, David Dockery writes, Men and women are the highest forms of God's earthly creation. Indeed, the crowning work of God's creative activity. All other aspects of creation have been created for the purpose of serving men and women, whereas men and women are created to serve God and thus uh, theocentric. He goes on to uh, to write that God has created humans in his image and likeness because they are created in the image of God. They have rationality, morality, spirituality and personality. We're talking about the book created in the image of God and joining us to talk about that. We'll try again is uh, Lauren McAfee, who is a Ph.D. candidate um, and one of the editors of this important volume. I think we have you now. Hey, hopefully you can hear me now. <laughs> yes, I certainly can. Thank you. And All I apologize right, for that. We want to hear every oh, word no you problem. say. <laughs> well, this is such a significant uh, book because it reminds us of what the scriptures say in the context of our culture where many are confused. Let's begin with the notion of uh, men and women being created in the image of God. When we think about our sin nature, we may not understand what that means. What does it mean to be created in the image of God as the scripture teaches? Yeah, so whenever we look at the scripture, the very first chapter in Genesis mentions the creation account, and it beautifully describes, you know, God is speaking all of these things that we see in our created world into existence. And and then God pauses whenever he has created everything else except for humanity. He pauses and has a conversation among himself as the Trinity, and then he creates man and woman in his image. And so there's kind of this culmination, this climax of creation when God creates man and woman. And he distinctly says about man and woman that they were created in his image. And he, he didn't create anything else and say that that it was in his image except for um, humanity. So there's this beautiful distinction that, that we see in the creation account that we are image bearers of God. And that doesn't mean, of course, that we are God, but it does mean that we have qualities that reflect God and his character. And so I think you just quoted uh, a wonderful quote from the book from Dr. Dockery, Mm -hmm. where he mentioned some of those things that that means. It means we have rationality, morality, spirituality, personality. And it also means that we have identity, an identity that was set for us by God, um, that we have value because uh, we are image bearers of the very creator God. And so that's something that is inherent to every human, but isn't based off of anything we can do ourselves. And so I think that gives great confidence in each, for each person to know that we have dignity and value and worth for who we are, regardless of what we can produce or how successful we can be or, or what others think of us, because it's not something that we, that, that value isn't given to us by others. It's given to us by God. And so that's a beautiful gift, as well as the identity we, that we have from God when he, after the creation account, then calls us to exercise dominion over the earth, and, and they're called to um, name the animals and, and work and to produce. And so that is also a part of who we are as image bearers, is that we were created to create, just like God created all of the earth. Now we have that aspect of us that we now do go and create in the world. And so 
being an image bearer, being uh, having the Imago Day, the image of God, is a, a beautiful gift to believers, and it is something that should also be a gift to our world as we live that out well, uh, and and show dignity and respect to all people, regardless of, like I said, regardless of how the world might see them, we know that they are image bearers, and so we should treat everyone as such. And and that's, I think, yeah, a beautiful gift that our world um, can receive whenever believers really live that out well. Yeah, yeah. We Part of the, the, the subtitle of the book uh, references our cultural confusion. There seems to be a celebration of fluidity, the, the notion that things are not fixed, that we can determine certain things that you and I would uh, agree are fixed, we can determine them for ourselves. And that has resulted in a great deal of confusion. And I think it's, it's mm-hmm. presented a challenge for believers who know what the scriptures teach, but don't quite know how that, how to fit into um, this culture. Can you talk about how important it is? If in fact it is for us to understand that the nature that God intends for us and the danger of failing to to recognize what it means to be created in the image of God. Absolutely. So if we know that the Bible is truth and that what God has said in his word is truth. And so in order to see have flourishing in our lives is to live by truth and to follow God's word, then we need to know what it teaches. And it does have uh, teaching about what it means to be man, what it means to be woman, um, what our identity is as image bearers, and then also how to live our lives in a way that can honor him. And so there, there's a lot of confusion, like you mentioned, in our culture today around some of those very things, gender, identity. And uh, Katie, Dr. Katie McCoy is one of the authors that wrote a chapter for this book. So the book is comprised of a number of different essays that were written by um, professors and PhDs. And so these are experts in their field, each writing kind of theologically, ethically, and culturally about this topic. So even though they're professors and, and they're very smart people, it's very accessible. So I don't want that to mm-hmm. turn people away from getting this book created in the image of God. But Dr. Katie McCoy wrote an essay on what it means to be male and female. And she really does um, kind of remind us of the importance of recognizing this aspect of gender and the the reality of male and female. And what does that mean to be male and female? And, and what does that mean for us as we're having conversations about things, even in the church or in culture related to uh, what roles women can have in the church? And she says, you know, how can we even have that conversation if we don't know what it means to be a woman? So she does a really nice job of walking through a number of passages and giving believers confidence in looking at what does the scripture say about gender and how can we apply that to various issues and conversations that we see um, both in culture as well as in the church. And so hopefully it's an encouragement to those who might be having those questions and having those conversations where there is this confusion around the topic of gender and identity and how to navigate that and in a way that's full of grace as we do stand for truth. Yeah. And I think for for most believers, we understand what this the scripture teaches. How do we give voice to that in a culture where um, if you hold a view that's consistent with scripture, you're considered to be hateful? I think this book helps us mm-hmm. not only to think through these issues in the context of our culture, but also how to give voice to the truth of God's word in a way that um, is more likely to be received. And I think many of us are timid about how do we how do we do that well? And this certainly uh, provides a resource. I was just going to ask you about um, your collaborators. There's a consensus view that this is a biblical 
uh, view on the subject of being created in the image of God. Talk a little bit about how the book is structured and who some of these um, contributors are. Yeah, so the book actually came from what was a conference. So my organization, Stand for Life, hosted a conference on this topic of being created in the image of God. And the, the, the presentations that were given were just so rich that we, we knew this would be great content to be able to share with a broader audience. And so that's how the book came about. But Created in the Image of God does have um, about a dozen contributors. And as I mentioned, they're all you know, professors and experts in their field. And they each look at various aspects of this, this doctrine of the Imago Dei applied to a particular lens. And so there's three sections. The first section is looking at what it means to be created in the image of God. Section two looks at the applications and implications. So those kind of get more into details of, okay, what does that mean for us as humans in relationship? And what does that mean about embodiment? Um, What does that mean for sanctity of life and life in the womb? How do we think about that with gender, male and female? So those are some of the the kind of topics and the culture, (laughs) culture side of things that are very relevant. And then part three is kind of looking at the confusion and trying to give some clarity. So you've got uh, someone like John Stone Street, who writes a chapter on faithful living in our confused culture, and Dr. Robert Stewart, who kind of has an apologetics approach to trying to help people think through how can we talk about this Mm -hmm. as we're having conversations with um, either fellow believers or people that don't believe in, in what the Bible teaches, and we're trying to explain um, the truth in a way that is clear and also um, shows the beauty of who God is and how he created things to be. And, and ultimately, hopefully, will point to the gospel and the hope in knowing Christ and living in freedom of uh, living according to his word. So I, I wrote the final chapter along with my um, friend Dan Darling, and we really hope to do that, kind of conclude by pointing to the beauty of human dignity according to God's Word and how that can also point us to the gospel and the hope that we have in Christ. Yeah. We're going to continue our conversation in just a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, the book is titled Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. The book is published by Forefront Books. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with one of the co-editors of Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. From the book, uh, reading, the confusion in this cultural moment is the result of what some refer to as the human condition, our sinful and restless alienation from God apart from Christ. The overall approach in this book Uh, reflects a consensus understanding that men and women have been created in God's image, that they have fallen and are influenced by sin, that Christ has provided redemption through his vicarious death and resurrection, and that there is hope in the promise of eternal life in Christ. Christ succeeded where Adam failed, allowing those who trust in him to enjoy and glorify him forever. The book uh, consists of wise, thoughtful, and insightful contributors, again, created in the image of, of God, applications and implications for our cultural confusion. And my guest, uh, Lauren McAfee, is uh, one of the co-editors of the book. One of the um, subjects that you cover, and it's uh, a pretty hot topic in our culture today since the Supreme Court decision last year, is the sanctity of life. Scott Bay um, writes in the uh, section on applications and implications on the subject. Tell us a little bit about 
um, the image of God, uh, that we are image bearers and the sanctity of life, why it's important to understand the one in order to appreciate the other. Yeah, I think that the sanctity of life and and kind of understanding why we care about that in light of what we see about all people being created in God's image and being and should be cared for and respected as image bearers means that we not only do care about life in the womb, which we do and and, and we should uh, seek to protect and care for life in the womb, um, but it also means that we care about the woman carrying that child. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of times when we think about the pro-life issue or sanctity of life issues, there's often this idea that we only you know, or at least it can be portrayed that we only care about the child in the womb, but that's not to hold to the full understanding of what it means that all people are created in the image of God. And that we care also about the woman who is facing maybe an unplanned pregnancy and would be considering an abortion. And so we, we don't believe in abortion because that is the wrongful taking of a life and, 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 and every life is precious and, and has dignity and value and should be given its chance at life. And so we, we care about caring well for women um, and, and the realities that she might be facing and seeing her for her full dignity and value and wanting to care for her as a human while also saying, but we also want to protect that life in the womb. And so Scott Ray does a really nice job mm-hmm. of, of kind of unpacking some of that nuance and helping us um, dive deeper into the beauty of this truth as it applies to the field of bioethics and life in the womb and what that means um, and how we can stand well for dignity at the beginning of human dignity at the beginning of life, the very beginning of life in the womb. Another section that may be surprising, but certainly is a rising uh, subject in our culture today is artificial intelligence, transhumanism, and the question of the person. Uh, Jacob Schatzer writes in this same section, the second section under applications and implications, writes on that subject. And we may not link an understanding of uh, the fact that we're created in God's image to these subjects. So help us to understand how understanding the one will help us to navigate the other. Yes. No, that's definitely a topic that I was so glad we got a chapter on Uh because it will be continuing to emerge more and more, especially as we see things like AI and chat GPT um, becoming more common. There is going to be questions about what does it mean to be human in light of technology that can uh, imitate humans to some extent. And so how do we differentiate for ourselves what it means to be a human made in God's image? when, you know, computers are writing papers just like us and writing forms of communication just like humans can. And so there there are all kinds of ways that this topic of the image of God and what that means for our identity will be applied in light of emerging technologies and how um, every generation younger than me is growing up uh, surrounded by this uh, technology and what that will mean for them as well in terms of their identity, even with things like social media, which now is not a new technology. Um, but what does that mean for us and how we view ourselves in light of um, the biblical truth about our identity in Christ and, and our image bareness in light of what we, you know, how we navigate social media? And I know that has been um, really harmful for a lot of young teens who have access to social media and suicide rates being so high and, and all of these things where technology touches um, on our understanding of our value, our identity and our human dignity. So um, yeah, Jacob does a great job 
touching on that in one of these chapters, as you mentioned, his, his chapter being on artificial intelligence, transhumanism, and the question of the person. So personhood yeah. certainly matters and is a question that's very relevant for today. Now, we only have about two minutes left, but I wanted to ask you about another. You made mention of John Stone Street. He writes about faithful living in a culture of confusion. I think that's the desire of all of us is to live faithfully for Christ in the midst of confusion. What what help does he offer us as we commit ourselves to honoring Christ in the time that uh, that we're in? Yeah, John Stone Street is just really excellent and always points to great truths as an apologist that he is and just an excellent, excellent communicator, but also with the through the lens of knowing that we, we want to care well and love others as we communicate truth. And so he helps us navigate how can we present this understanding and how can we do that in a winsome way and point others to their source of dignity and how the church can be a light in the midst of confusing times on these topics. And he does a great job of helping believers navigate that for the church's story in this moment, in this time, in our culture, to live that out well. So his chapter is really a great application for the church specifically to apply this into our culture. We've highlighted only a few of the contributors, but the truth is every one of them has a great deal to say and offer to believers to better understand how being created in the image of God translates into life in the 21st century. Again, the book is titled Created in the Image of God, Applications and Implications for Our Cultural Confusion. Uh, Lauren McAfee, thank you so much for joining us to talk about it. Thanks for having me. It was great to be with you, Georgian. Appreciate it. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour, so stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing and engineering here in the Portland area, and Pedro Bartez is producing and engineering in Seattle. Well, a jury on Friday found former Loudoun County Superintendent Scott Ziegler guilty of retaliating against a teacher for cooperating with Virginia's grand jury probe into the district's alleged mishandling of sexual assault cases. Ziegler wrongfully terminated a special education teacher who had informed investigators under subpoena about sexual assault that she and her teaching assistant at the time had experienced in their classroom. The jury concluded after a four-day trial that started on Monday of last week. After uh, teacher Aaron Brooks told prosecutors... Uh, sent by Virginia Attorney General Jason Myers about the incident. Ziegler fired her for working with the grand jury. Uh, Ziegler's trial, which he didn't speak um, from, was on charges of acting with a conflict of interest and penalizing an employee for appearing in court. Both are misdemeanors. Well, the incident involved a fifth-grade student at Rosa Lee Carter Elementary School, who Brooks uh, said groped her and Laura Vandermullen in class. Well, after complaining to the administration, it gave them a de-escalation sign called No No Hands for them to put in front of their bodies to stop the student from touching them. Well, Brooks testified to the grand jury about the administration's management of the situation. That sparked a sequence of retaliation against her from the principal and other administrators until he fired her. Well, prosecutors said that uh, Brooks, the teacher, was targeted out of all of the factory and uh, faculty rather in the district at a school board meeting in June of 2022, Brooks contract wasn't renewed at the meeting. Brooks accused the board members of covering uh, covering up during the uh, public comment period. The probe the grand jury was conducting was 
mandated by Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. It was uh, launched after the same high school transgender student allegedly sexually assaulted two females in 2021 in the LCPS school district. So this is the same person who um, had assaulted two students as well. Well, California Democrat Governor Gavin Newsom has chosen LaFonza Butler, a pro-abortion activist, Democratic strategist, and former labor union boss to fill late Dianne Feinstein's Senate seat. Butler is the president of Emily's List, one of the top pro-abortion groups in the country. They seek to elect pro-abortion females into office. She's expressed support for Radical Women's Health Protection Act, a bill that would codify Roe versus Wade and massively expand abortions all across the country. Well, Emily's List spent $112 million during the 2020 presidential election cycle. They partnered with Planned Parenthood to raise $150 million in the 2022 midterm election. Emily's List describes Butler as a leader in Democratic politics, campaign strategy, and the labor movement for two decades, who has dedicated her life to empowering women and supporting them and finding their voice and using it to make meaningful change. That's what they call it now, meaningful change, destroying your child in utero. In receiving the um, nomination, I'm honored to accept Governor Gavin Newsom's nomination to be U.S. Senator for the state I have made my home and honored by his trust in me to serve the people of California and this great nation. No one will ever measure up to the legacy of Senator Feinstein, she went on to say. Butler previously served as director of public policy and campaigns in North America for Airbnb as a partner at the political consulting firm SCRB Strategies and as senior advisor to Vice President Kamala Harris and failed presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. She also was elected president of the biggest union in California and the nation's largest largest home care workers union, SEIU Local 215, uh, when she was only 30 years old, according to Emily's list, her bio. Now, there is some question about her residency. Uh, most of the documentation about her has her a resident in Maryland. And so some Republicans are challenging the, the residential requirement for her to be appointed to the uh, senator who passed away this uh, past week from California. Former Obama aide Steve Ratner told NBC News in an interview that President Biden bowed to progressives by joining the auto workers in their picket line and said the decision was outrageous. For him to be going on a picket line is outrageous, Ratner said, according to the outlet. There's no precedent for it. The tradition of the president is to stay neutral in these things. I get the politics, he said. The progressives all said, we don't want a mediator. We want an advocate. He bowed to the progressives, and now he's going out there to put his thumb on the scale, and it's wrong. End quote. Ratner, who headed former President Obama's auto industry task force, told NBC that Biden joined the striking auto workers in Michigan and told them they deserved a significant raise. Ratner also said in a post on X that while it was good politics for the president to join the auto workers, there were merits on both sides of the argument. Biden should not be putting his thumb on the scale in such dramatic fashion. Well, the civil trial stemming from New York Attorney General Letitia James' lawsuit against former President Trump and the Trump Organization began in New York City today. You probably could hear the president respond from wherever you happen to be. The non-jury trial presided over by Judge Arthur Ngoran 
began this morning in Manhattan, comes uh, after a New York State appeals court rejected the 2024 GOP primary frontrunner's request to delay the civil trial. The former president is listed among dozens of possible witnesses. And Gorin last week ruled that Trump and the Trump organization committed fraud while building his real estate empire by deceiving banks, insurers and other o- others by overvaluing his assets and exaggerating his net worth on paperwork used in making deals and securing financing. And Gorin's ruling comes after James sued the former president, his children and the Trump organization, alleging that Trump uh, inflated his net worth by billions of dollars and said his children helped him do it. And Gorin ordered that some of Trump's business licenses be rescinded as punishment, making it difficult or impossible for them to do business in New York. The judge said that he would continue to have an independent monitor oversee the Trump organization's operations. The former president denied any wrongdoing and has said the investigation was politically motivated and a witch hunt. The former president has argued that his assets are worth far more than what is listed on annual financial statements and argued the statements have disclaimers. He came out swinging earlier in the day. By this afternoon, he was quite pleased that the judge pointed out that the statute of limitations may have expired. It is an ongoing uh, process, and we'll try to keep following it for you. Democrat New York Governor Kathy Hochul on Sunday called on Congress to limit who crosses the border, saying it's too open right now. Ironically, repeating what congressional Republicans have long demanded from the Biden administration, the governor, she made the plea during an appearance on CBS's Face the Nation. CBS host Margaret Brennan noted that there were no border provisions in the federal spending deal struck by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy this weekend to avoid a government shutdown, asking Hochul what she would want Congress to to get done in the next 45 days. Several critics online unleashed on the governor for apparently changing her tune since espousing New York as a sanctuary state and encouraging people to come in 2021. Easier said than actually doing. More than 125,000 migrants have since arrived in New York City since last year. And Hochul recently secured a deal with the Biden administration to expedite work authorizations and delay deportations for Venezuelans seeking asylum. The New York governor activated an additional 150 National Guard members last week to address the migrant crisis and help with case management to get asylum seekers work permits. The move increased the total number of National Guard troops dedicated to the mission to 2,200. Yet New York City Mayor Eric Adams, whose relationship has soured with fellow Democrat Biden by repeatedly demanding more federal assistance on the migrant crisis over the past several months, has said the more new waves of arriving migrants are from African nations, China, even Russia, indicating a potential growing security risk Compared to the initial influxes from uh, Latin America, Adams is pushing a controversial decompression strategy to resettle migrants outside the city. One wonders at what point these Democrat voices will be heard by the president and the president will respond. As mentioned earlier, Dianne Feinstein has died. The longtime California Democrat senator uh, died on Friday morning. She was 90 years old, first elected back in 1992. She'd been the oldest sitting senator and was the longest tenured female senator in U.S. history. She began her career in public office back in 1969 when she was elected to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. In 78, she was elected mayor of San Francisco, becoming the first woman to hold that office, which she held until 1988. Earlier this year, clearly in declining health, she announced that she would not run for re-election in 2024. 
As mentioned, California Governor Newsom named Democrat strategist LaFonza Butler as Senator Feinstein's replacement in the U.S. Senate after the longtime Democrat senator died last week. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break, but uh, we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show as we're working our way through some of the headlines over the last couple of days. Well, House GOP members are preparing a motion to expel Representative Matt Gates, the Republican out of Florida, amid his renewed threat to pursue a motion to vacate House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Well, the House Republican members will seek to expel Gates if the Ethics Committee report comes back with findings of guilt. Uh, one member told uh, Fox News the report is mostly written but doesn't know what it contains. Yet, following threats to vacate McCarthy, the member said Gates, no one can, said of Gates, no one can stand him at this point, a smart guy without morals, end quote. It takes a two-thirds vote to expel, and Republicans are uh, treading on this uh, very thin ice with their majority. The House is down to 433 members. It's unclear where things stand with federally indicted Representative George Santos, the Republican from New York. And if you were to have members expelled, retire or die, the majority could be right on the edge for the GOP. The White House is prohibiting senior administration officials from traveling for international energy engagements that promote carbon-intensive fuels, including oil, natural gas, and coal. It's been learned the guidance, which originated from the White House National Security Council, or NSC, was revealed in the Department of Energy memo issued internally to agent staff on the 15th of last month and obtained by Fox News Digital. The memo was authored by Deputy Secretary of Energy David Turk, who outlined travel restrictions and stated officials are required to obtain approval from the NSC before attending any global energy engagement. This guidance, and I'm quoting, sets out a presumption that agencies and departments will pursue international energy engagement that advances clean energy projects, he wrote in the memo. It's also uh, it also outlines a process for seeking limited expectations to pursue carbon intensive engagements on a justified geostrategic imperative or energy for development, energy access basis, end quote. Well, the guidance rules out any U.S. government engagement related to unabated or partially abated coal generation, he continued. Carbon intensive international energy engagements are those directly related and dedicated to the production, transportation or consumption of carbon intensive fuels that would lead to additional greenhouse gas emissions. Well, according to the memo, carbon-intensive fossil fuels include coal, oil, and natural gas. In addition, the memo notes that the guidance became effective in November of 2021 and applies to all international energy engagements. Well, Turk issued a separate memo in early 2022, April, which first outlined how the Department of Energy would implement the uh, NSC guidance and stated that energy engagements that promote carbon-intensive fuels may only be exempt if they advance national security or are essential to support energy access in vulnerable areas. Daniel Turner, who's the founder and executive director of Power the Future, who reviewed the memo, said that this war on American fossil fuels is making us poorer, weaker, and more reliant on China and OPEC for our energy. He continued, these petty, hyper-partisan, childish games should end before it's too late, end quote. Well, vehicles with internal combustion engines, that's gas, uh, gasoline-powered engines, of course, make up more than 99% of all cars in the U.S. and about 99% of new car sales, according to J.D. Power. 
And approximately 60% of electricity in the U.S. is generated from fossil fuels, mainly natural gas. While 17% is produced from wind or solar power. Putting things into perspective. A New York judge ordered the state to pay nearly half a million dollars in legal fees to the National Rifle Association after the gun rights group won a major case at the Supreme Court. In a case decided last summer, the Supreme Court ruled that a New York public carry licensing law was unconstitutional and that the ability to carry a pistol in public was a constitutional right guaranteed by the Second Amendment. The NRA was a party in that case, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And last week, a New York judge ordered the state to pay $447,700.82 in legal fees. The NRA regards this award in the, uh, in the case as a pivotal victory, the symbol that justice is definitively on our side. That's a quote from Michael Jean. He's in uh, the NRA's director of the Office of Litigation Council in a statement. Well, Governor Gavin Newsom raised the minimum wage for fast food employees in the state of California to $20 per hour. If an employee works full time, this equals $41,600 annually. My guess is you won't be able to afford a hamburger in California. Associated Press uh, writes that a new law in California will raise the minimum wage for fast food workers to $20 an hour next year. An acknowledgement from the state's Democratic leaders that most of the often overlooked workforce are the primary earners for their low-income households. When it takes effect in April of next year, fast food workers in California will have the highest guaranteed base salary in the industry. The state's minimum wage for all other workers is $15.50 per hour, is already among the highest in the U.S. Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom signed the law on Thursday amid a throng of cheering workers and labor leaders at an event in L.A. The $20 minimum wage is just the starting point. The law creates a fast food council that has the power to increase that wage every year through 2029 by 3.5% or the change in averages for the U.S. Consumer Price Index for urban wage earners and clerical workers, whichever is lower. The Michigan Supreme Court is mandating judges to address people by their preferred pronouns. This immediately politicizes the court. The Michigan Supreme Court ordered all judges there to address people in court by the pronouns they use or by other respectful means. That's in quote quotes rather we serve the entire public and are required to treat those who come before us with civility and respect which it seems to me you could do by whatever name they are called justice elizabeth welch uh, said the gender identity of a member of the public is a part of their individual identity regardless of whether others agree or approve she went on to say the statewide rule was approved five to two some transgender non-binary and gender fluid people use they them and their as a gender-neutral singular personal pronoun, even though it is plural. Republican-nominated Justice David Viviano opposed the new rule change, arguing that it forces judges into socially and politically fraught topics that have little to do with the judicial system. Well, an influencer has been arrested while cheering, while live-streaming the Philadelphia looting. That's uh, last Tuesday evening. The social media influencer, as they're called, I can think of several other names that might be more appropriate or descriptive, who appeared to cheer on looters while live streaming as they ransacked Philadelphia stores on Tuesday night, was arrested and charged with six felonies. You can hear her laughing uproariously on the uh, on the uh, footage. Uh, Deja Blackwell, who goes by Meatball, 
I have no idea, so don't ask, was arrested during her live stream. The 21-year-old Blackwell was also hit with two misdemeanors on top of her six felony counts and was seen crying in her mugshot. The social media influencer's bail was set at $25,000, which she posted Thursday morning. During her live stream, she called out the police and challenged them to arrest her. They took her seriously. Tell the police they're either going to lock me up tonight or it's going to get lit. It's going to be a movie, she said. Well, apparently it was both. Philadelphia Inquirer reports that what we're doing tonight behind this injustice tap-in Well, Deja Blackwell wrote to her roughly 185,000 Instagram followers. It's amazing what people will follow these days. Referring to a a judge's decision earlier in the day to drop all charges against former Philadelphia police officer Mark Dial, who was arrested in the um, fatal shooting last month of Eddie Izari, 27, during a traffic stop. Interim Police Commissioner John Stanford has uh, described the uh, thieves as opportunists who piggybacked on the anger and grief surrounding the um, the case. Well, thousands of illegal immigrants are being dropped off in San Diego, triggering what's being uh, described as a humanitarian crisis within the city. An unmarked white bus pulled up to a park uh, in San Diego on Monday morning, where it dropped off about 50 recently arrived migrants with little idea where they were and no place to sleep that night. The bus was driven by the U.S. government, which is dropping off uh, thousands of migrants in communities along the border as a new wave of illegal immigration strains the resources of the Border Patrol and everyone else involved. Local shelters are hitting capacity, including the roughly 950 beds in San Diego that are typically adequate for recently arrived migrants who need a place to sleep for a night or two. As a result, immigration agents are dropping people off on the streets at bus stops and in train stations angering local officials and worrying aid groups. The San Diego, in San Diego, an estimated 7,800 migrants have been released in the past two weeks. That's according to county officials who on Tuesday declared the situation to be a humanitarian crisis. And yet there are crickets in Washington coming out of the Biden administration. By the way, oil prices um, neared $100 per barrel with no help on the horizon. They reached their highest level in over a year. Thursday, after crude stocks um, at a key storage hub fell to their lowest since July of last year. Crude inventories in um, Cushing, Oklahoma, fell to 22 million barrels in the fourth week of September, hovering close to the operational minimum, according to data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. That's a drop of 943,000 barrels compared to the prior week. The U.S. West Texas immediate futures touched 95 point uh, $95.03 per barrel, marking the highest since August of 2022. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. If you're in um, Seattle, we are out for the day, but we'll be back tomorrow. I hope you'll join us at 4. In Portland, we'll continue in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland edition of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Congress, as you know, came to terms on a government funding bill to avoid a shutdown. The short-term bill will last 45 days and expire just before Thanksgiving. The threat of a federal government shutdown suddenly lifted late Saturday as the president signed a temporary funding bill to keep agencies open with little time to spare after Congress rushed to approve the bipartisan deal. The package drops aid to Ukraine, a White House priority opposed opposed 
by a growing number of GOP lawmakers, but increases federal disaster assistance by $16 billion, meeting the president's full request. The bill funds the government until the 17th of November after chaotic days of turmoil in in the House. Speaker Kevin McCarthy abruptly abandoned demands for steep spending cuts from his right flank and instead relied on Democrats to pass the bill at the risk of his own job. The Senate followed with final passage, closing a whirlwind day at the Capitol. The House voted on an overwhelming bipartisan basis, 335 to 91, for a short-term funding bill known as the Continuing Resolution 209. Democrats and 126 Republicans voted yes, 90 Republicans voted no. Representative Matt Gates says he's going to file a motion to oust Speaker McCarthy this week. The Florida representative declared Sunday he will seek to oust McCarthy as House Speaker after the drama-filled scramble to pass a federal budget forced a last-minute temporary spending bill that required Democrat votes to pass it. Gates, who's the leader of a wing of fiscal conservatives that wanted all 12 federal agency spending bills passed instead of a continuing resolution, said McCarthy's uh, maneuvering on Saturday violated the deal he made in January to become Speaker. Uh, Gates said, I will file a motion to vacate against McCarthy this week. I will survive, McCarthy said on Face the Nation. Uh, Speaking of Matt Gates. Uh, and uh, that he will introduce a motion to vacate McCarthy from his seat this week. Bring it on. Let's get over with it, he went on to say. Hmm. Progressive Representative Jamal Bowman, the Democrat out of New York, pulled a fire alarm in one of the House representatives' three office buildings amid a chaotic morning as lawmakers scramble to avert a likely government shutdown. Well, committee Chair Brian Steele said the matter is being investigated now. Bowman is being questioned by the Capitol Police's Criminal Investigation Unit. Representative Bowman, he pulled a fire alarm in the Cannon office building this morning, they said at the time. An investigation into why it was pulled is underway. Uh, it happened just after House Republicans announced that they would rush a stopgap spending bill known as the continuing resolution to the House floor on Saturday, just as the Senate is weighing its own continuing resolution as well. Democrats were caught off guard by the announcement and complained the GOP was not giving them enough time to properly read the bill, which is over 70 pages long. Some are suggesting he did that in order to delay the vote or to prevent it from happening altogether. Uh, Capitol Police are circulating the photo of the man pulling the fire alarm. It was uh, it ended up being Representative Bowman, who says he simply was disoriented and in a hurry to get to the House floor. And that's how it happened. Not everybody's buying that explanation. Universities are coddling students, fostering dependency on government to fix their issues post-graduation. James Martin Center uh, says that universities are supposed to prepare young people to become independent by teaching them critical thinking and preparing them for careers. When a young adult enters university, we expect him or her to come out prepared to handle life as an independent and resilient adult. Well, after nearly 20 years of teaching at San Jose State University, including living on campus for two years as a faculty in residence, that universities are creating a dependency on government systems. Creating dependency is done in a variety of ways, he says. One way is by treating students as children. The SJSU, I saw this often, he says. The University Health Center held Saturday morning cartoon events for students to attend in pajamas while they ate cereal and watched television meant for kindergartners. Another method to ensure the raising of a dependent generation is safeguarding students from offense. This includes the use of trigger warnings, which... Some no longer call trigger warnings because the word trigger may be triggering. 
Safe spaces where students won't be confronted with ideas that may offend them or they may disagree with. Counseling services when, well, President Trump won the 2016 election because it was just more than they could handle. And the changing of terms to avoid upsetting students. SGSU recently changed the term academic probation which was previously uh, used when a student's grade point average fell below a C to academic notice. Just feels better. Well, the most harmful tactic universities employ to ensure a government-dependent generation is the constant poverty narrative students are surrounded by. James Martin Center. President Biden has postponed, um, rather proposed, holding the fewest offshore oil drilling lease licenses in history. And he's tried another approach to canceling student loan debt. The president's education department just took the next step on its second attempt to get broad student debt relief to millions of borrowers. The Supreme Court ruled the uh, HEROES Act was the improper law to carry out relief as a result of the pandemic. So the department announced it would be trying again using the Higher Education Act of 1965, which does not require the existence of a national emergency. The Higher Education Act requires the administration go through the negotiated rulemaking process, which includes a series of negotiation sessions and periods of public comment. The department's Friday announcement released the names of the negotiators along with topics the negotiations will focus on in the upcoming sessions. The Education Department released a list of 26 selected negotiators to participate in the upcoming sessions, the first of which will be held on the 10th and the 11th of this month. In the meantime, the president is still attempting to forgive as many loans as possible. So far, he has forgiven over 804,000 student loans to the price tag of $39 billion. Now, just to clarify, they're not forgiven. They're just shifted from those who borrowed the money to those who pay taxes and may or may not have attended university, may have attended, but paid their loans back. So it simply shifted onto the shoulders of others. Well, the first co-defendant of Trump pleads guilty to five misdemeanor counts of election-related charges. A first co-defendant indicted by the Georgia grand jury in connection with the former president's alleged efforts to overturn the presidential election pleaded guilty on Friday. Scott Hall is the first of 19 Trump allies who agreed to enter a plea in the case. Also the first defendant to turn himself in to authorities in Georgia in August. All pleaded guilty to five misdemeanor counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with the performance of election duties. Los Angeles enacted a controversial zero bail policy. A zero bail policy is a process eliminating set cash bail amounts for suspect uh, criminals accused of misdemeanors and specific nonviolent felonies. It took effect in Los Angeles on Sunday, even as dozens of cities challenged the controversial system in court. But just before the policy took effect, a dozen cities uh, in Los Angeles County filed a court action on Friday, arguing it poses a threat to public safety. Zero bail policy has been implemented in Los Angeles County, replacing the traditional cash-based system. The zero bail policy is now officially in place. It signifies the discontinuation of the longstanding practice of determining bail amounts for defendants based on the alleged crime's severity. Critics argue that this previous system disproportionately favored the wealthy and did not significantly enhance public safety. But the absence of it certainly may undermine public safety. A federal court upheld protecting kids. The Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals on Thursday upheld Kennedy 
and Tennessee laws banning gender-bending treatment on minors. The law had been challenged by the ACLU. Chief Judge Jeffrey Sutton stated, This is a relatively new diagnosis with ever-shifting approaches to care over the last decade or two. Under these circumstances, it is difficult for anyone to be sure about predicting the long-term consequence of abandoning age limits of any sort of uh, uh, these treatments. End quote. Tennessee Attorney General Jonathan Smoretti, he praised the decision, saying Tennessee law that protects children from irreversible gender-related medical interventions remains in effect. Given this, uh, this ruling and the fact that similar bans in Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Montana, and Indiana have been overturned, it's likely that this issue will be headed to the U.S. Supreme Court, ultimately. In Michigan, if someone is under 18, they will now not be allowed to get married. Under 18, you cannot get married, even if their parents consent. Well, Democrat Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed the bill into law, contending that it was needed to protect children from making a life-altering decision that they were not old enough to make. Upon signing it, Whitmer ostensibly stated, keeping Michiganders safe and healthy is one of my top priorities. And today, bipartisan bills will build on our effort to protect young people, especially young women, from abuse, end quote. Now, keep in mind, this is the same Whitmer who also demanded that children have access to gender-altering medical procedures without parental consent. That, without parental consent, evidently, in Whitmer's warped mind, a child is old enough to decide to permanently alter their body, but too young to consent to get married, even if their parents agree. Oh, it's a world we live in, is it not? Well, you know what I mean. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, tomorrow we're going to speak with Coach Kennedy. I guess he's not Coach Kennedy anymore. He attended the first game of the season following the Supreme Court decision that uh, reinstated him into his position and then resigned. We'll find out more about that tomorrow when he joins us here on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, San Fran vandalism, as it's being referred to by some, it's no secret that San Francisco has a growing crime problem thanks entirely to the city adopting soft-on-crime policies and thanks to the rising crime and increasing number of businesses in the city that pulled up stakes and left for good. A recent statistic, courtesy of a survey conducted by the Golden Gate Restaurant Association, demonstrates just how bad crime has gotten in the city by the bay. Just 3% of restaurants in the city have not experienced any vandalism. Since 2021, San Francisco has shelled out $1 million to almost 800 businesses to deal with damages such as graffiti, broken windows, and other vandalism-related property damage. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., longtime Democrat and scion of the party's most famous family, is currently running a primary challenge against Joe Biden, but he may soon announce his third-party candidacy. RFK Jr. entered the race back in April and has maintained roughly 20 percent of Democrat support in the polls. But he has repeatedly been frustrated by the DNC's blatant move to rig the primaries to favor Biden. As a result, speculation has mounted that Kennedy would launch a third party bid. Indeed, on Friday, he promised that on October 9th in Philadelphia, he'll make a major announcement to bring about a sea change in American politics which appears to confirm that um, earlier notion. If Kennedy goes, uh, uh, rather does go third party, just how much longer will the DNC hold on to the unpopular age uh, sitting president? It's an open and rhetorical question. 
Just how much money is the green energy industry getting from the federal government? Translate from you, the taxpayer. Well, the Biden administration quietly noted that number in a recently released 59-page report from the Energy Information Administration. According to the report, from 2018 to 2022, the federal government gave out $183.3 billion in taxpayer subsidies to the green energy industry. Significantly, over half of that total has been given out since the Biden administration began. The green energy industry isn't the only energy industry receiving taxpayer subsidies, as the fossil fuel industry does as well, which Democrats and the Biden administration are quick to point out. However, the return cost of the subsidies investments to the American taxpayer are not even in the same ballpark for the amount of energy created nationwide by natural gas It's $2.3 billion in subsidies last year equates to 0.05 per every million of British thermal units produced. As for the solar industry, which receives $7.5 billion in subsidies last year, it received 11.9 per uh, MMBTU it generated. In other words, American taxpayers are increasingly paying more for less. Well, the science must be stopped. Well, that's effectively What's happened to the world's largest anthropological conference where a planned panel of, on um, skeleton identification was canceled due to transgender activists. The panel was um, advertised sexual identification, whether an individual was male or female, using the skeleton is one of the most fundamental components of bioarchaeology and forensic anthropology. But since the notion that human sexuality is binary has become anathema to the radical left, the Rainbow Mafia swooped in to demand that the offending science be banned. With cries of transphobia, the conference bowed to the pressure and pulled the panel. So if you are trying to determine what happened at the crime scene, it may be that science no longer applies to identify that loved one who was the victim of the crime or to identify the perpetrator. The second primary debate uh, ratings tanked, dropped by 3.5 million viewers over the first debate. The final second quarter GDP estimate remained unchanged at 2.1%. U.S. GDP revised down in every first quarter from 2020 to 2022. A trans-identifying male violently beat a female student in Oregon Middle School. That was in the Tiger Tualatin area. A U.K. study finds puberty blockers exacerbated mental anguish for trans-identified teens. And Newsom signed a law in uh, California giving California fast food workers a $20 minimum wage. Only 3% of uh, San Francisco restaurants have not been vandalized in the past months, and Chinese hackers nabbed 60,000 emails in State Department breach. Student loan bills resumed for 40 million Americans, and Kathy Hochul wants to limit migrants, saying the border is too open. The New York uh, governor had a far different message about illegal immigration not that long ago. Donald Trump faced a New York trial today for damages after a judge found fraud in real estate, um, his real estate empire. And Merrick Garland, he claims the Department of Justice does not have one rule for Republicans and another rule for Democrats. That uh, is being challenged. Iranian officials admit Islamic regime is involved in 83 horror bombings that killed 220 Marines. That was in 1983, by the way. And a judge has ordered New York to dole out nearly half a million in legal fees for the NRA after a Supreme Court victory. A keen sense of the obvious, some Democrats fear Bidenomics branding is backfiring. And Nobel uh, 
The Nobel in medicine has gone to two scientists whose work enabled the creation of mRNA vaccines against COVID-19. Well, on this day in history, 1919, President Woodrow Wilson suffers a serious stroke at the White House that leaves him paralyzed on his left side. 1950, the comic strip Peanuts, created by Charles M. Schultz, is syndicated to seven newspapers. 1967, Thurgood Marshall is sworn in as an associate justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. 1984, Richard W. Miller becomes the first FBI agent to be arrested and charged with espionage. Miller would be tried three times and sentenced to 20 years in prison. He would be released after nine. And finally, on this day in history, 2002, the Washington, D.C. sniper attacks began, setting off a three-week manhunt. John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo ultimately would be uh, arrested for killing 10 people and wounding three others. I remember that so so vividly, uh, what happened in that engagement. Well, as I mentioned, tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Joe Kennedy, uh, mostly known as Coach Joe Kennedy, but he has stepped away from that position. We'll talk with him more about that after the long period and the final uh, Supreme Court decision and him being reinstated, attending and coaching that first game. What happened and what happens next? He'll join us uh, tomorrow. And then on Wednesday, looking forward to Dr. Paul uh, Metzger. He will join us to talk about his latest book, More Than Things, A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture. That's coming up on Wednesday of this week. Once again, I want to thank James Blend for um, engineering and producing today. My understanding is Dave King will be back. He's filling in for another staff member in the building and has for the last several days. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day and have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.